0: Uh, final speaker uh, who's speaking to Beyond the Academy applying medical history to health policy and the speaker is of course Professor Virginia Beridge, who's based at the London School of Hygiene where she's director of the Centre for History and Public Health uh, and her research interests include the history of drugs and alcohol uh, and her latest book Demons are changing attitudes to alcohol drugs and tobaccos was published last year. As the title of her talk today suggests she's also engaged with the relationship between history and policy, and she was one of the founders of the network of that name uh, some 13 years ago, I was rather <laughs> surprised to find out. Um, and our own centre uh, is located in the Faculty of Public Health and Policy, as Virginia herself suggested to me in an email the other week. At first glance, at least, a rather curious place to find a group of historians, but it actually had a rationale to it, I think, which perhaps you'll be addressing. So, Virginia, over to you. Oh, um, about do know. <laughs> um,
1: thank you very much. Um, I'm finding this afternoon very daunting, actually. Um, uh, the uh, things that other people are talking about are making me feel that I'm lucky to be <laughs> at the stage in my career that I'm at. I'm sure I wouldn't make my way if I was uh, starting now. And one of the things um, uh, John mentioned, my current location, um, One of the things that perhaps has been a bit unusual about my career is that I have tended to work um, in non-historical locations. I have worked in uh, a history department, but I've worked also uh, quite frequently in departments that aren't um, historical. And that's true of of where I am at the moment. Um, And I began my career uh, as a historian at the um, Addiction Research Unit at the Institute of uh, Psychiatry. Um, I guess another unusual thing is that I didn't come up through the uh, medical history route either, and I didn't have well funding for a long while. <laughs> so maybe I'm not the right person to talk to this um, to this session. But I'm going to be talking about history and um, health policy. Um, and how does it move on? Is it that one? Mm-hmm. All right, okay. <laughs> um, history is something that's around us all the time. If we're reading um, newspapers, people are using history, and particularly in the health area, I think. Um, uh, they, they're making reference all the time. This is what came up um, a few years ago when we were having the, um, the changes um, in the NHS. Um, Uh, not always, I think, um, in the right way. This is something else which appeared in The New Statesman, um, uh, which is a great bugbear of mine about how Queen Victoria uh, used to be high on cannabis, and this is, uh, has a, a lesson for the present. So I'll come back to my efforts to uh, try and deconstruct uh, this myth in a minute. Um, but I think what this reminds us of is that there are uh, two uh, parallel trends which have happened both in the historical area and in the health area in recent years in the health in the historical area there 's been the rise of public history we 've already heard about public engagement with history um, this afternoon but in the health area there 's been the rise of evidence in health policy so Um, there's talk of evidence-based medicine, evidence-based health policy. Uh, The slide here has Cochrane's famous Rock Carling lecture, which was given in the early 1970s, effectiveness and efficiency. So there's been that kind of evidence-based revolution um, in the health field as well. So my argument has always been that those two should be brought together that history is in a sense the evidence-based discipline par excellence Um, as historians we're very used to uh, acquiring evidence to uh, sifting evidence to analyzing evidence so um, we're really very well placed uh, to be a, a policy science so What has history got to offer as a policy science? I think one of its great advantages is the big picture. So much of health research, uh, and I work in a health institution that does this sort of thing, tends to focus on relatively small parts of the overall picture. Um, But historians, as historians, I think, we're used to um, looking over a very wide field Um, engaging with that field, thinking about the big trends and the developments, So I think we're very well placed to, to give that kind of big picture. What we're not placed to give is, I think, a blueprint for the future. We can't say this is going to happen or that is going to happen. Nor, I think, should we be saying... This has all been done before, you know. There's no point in doing it now because back in the 1930s we were doing it. That doesn't go down very well with a policy audience at all. They want to hear something positive, and I think we can give something positive uh, in terms of identifying what are the key drivers of action, what are some of the key issues at stake. So we're not necessarily saying what should be done, but we're saying, here's the policy scenario, and we recognize that from the past, and we've seen the way that operates in the past. A few years ago, I did some some interviews um, with people in the policy field who used history in their work, or who might use history, and I always remember this interview I did with uh, one of Tony Blair's speechwriters, and he said, we like historians because they don't tell us what to do. He said, we're surrounded by interest groups pressure groups people with agendas in policy and you know we, we're swamped with that but what's interesting about history is um that they identify the issues sorry i'm using the issue word um <laughs> but they don't necessarily have a blueprint for action so they're, ana- they're people who go in for analysis uh without being necessarily advocates So having put that um, in place, uh, how are the ways you can do this if you're minded to do it? Well, um, John's already mentioned history and policy. Um, History and policy, some of you may have come across already. That's its website up there. Um, It is a website which is run from Cambridge and it's now a unit which is based at King's College in, in London and they also do some teaching there on um, you know getting history into policy. So you could, if you wanted, um, submit something for a policy briefing which would go up on their website um, but they also bring together um, people who are uh, working in particular areas with policy interests. So they've had seminars. I think you were involved in the Department of Education, weren't you? There have been seminars with the Cabinet Office. There have been seminars with with other groupings as well. And sometimes they they get asked to do some quite interesting policy-related things. For example, you probably will remember the recent inquiry into Jimmy Savile and um hospitals his is involved in what he did in hospitals which was published uh just the other week and two of my colleagues martin gorski and alex mold were asked to go along and speak with others at a seminar which was run by history and policy for the person who was undertaking that inquiry and they talked about things like what was the attitude of patients um, in in those days how did patients you know patients weren't the complaining sort back in the days that that Saville was operating and so on so um, quite often now i think inquiries like that and uh, select committee inquiries and so on will take on uh, a historical dimension Um, so I thought that was, uh, and the Savile Inquiry did actually use um, some of Alex Mould's work in in the report which they published. There are other ways too. Um, We've had welcome funding recently uh, to run a series of seminars together with the Manchester Centre and these have been uh, seminars which have brought together historians, policy interests and social scientists. So uh, we've covered topics such as cancer, the role of the GP, policy pilots, which I've got up on the board here, and a recent one on alcohol policy, which looked at the relationship between uh, local and uh, national um, policy. Um, And we found it's been an interesting learning exercise as to how to actually get these very different constituencies uh, to talk to each other. And to enable us to do that, we've had one of those 5,000 pound pots from the welcome, which has gone a very long way. Um, and the other th- uh, mechanism, I think, is, uh, which Dan has already mentioned, is the, the post-note, Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology. One of our PhD students, Gareth Millward, had one of these secondments, um, and he's produced a post-note on disability policy. So um, there are lots of ways that um, these sorts of things can be done. Other ways, I think, um, is using contacts who are not historians as kind of ways to uh, get into policymaking circles. It's easier for us working at the School of Hygiene because we're surrounded by people who are not historians. And if you want to talk to somebody working on current health services, you just go down to the next floor and you know they're milling about all over the place. Um, but even in bigger institutions and ones where historians are in history departments, it is possible. Uh, to make those sorts of links. Publishing in other journals, um, we've had a bit uh, about publishing in history journals, um, but I think it is important also to reach out to the field through their own journals. Um, John and I had something in contemporary social science, reaching out to the social scientists who weren't um, including history amongst their social sciences. Um, The Lancet has already been mentioned. I've had something on that two-page series just recently about e-cigarettes and history. Um, And some of the other journals as well, the American Journal of Public Health and so on, um, have their own history series and are receptive. And that's another way. I think people do read those articles. It's a way of getting into uh, the policy field. Uh, The research councils have their own systems but when I looked on their websites recently I found that all of these seem to be in flux and the old fellowships which they used to give um, seem to have gone by the wayside and they're all reconstituting the way that they fund these kind of policy uh, impact um, uh, things at the moment so it's worth looking on the websites they seem to be changing. Um, Just also to mention that if you are operating in a different country you don't necessarily do it the way that you do it in the UK. And in, the lo- in America, uh, the historians have gone down the route of being expert witnesses in law courts because a lot of policy is made through the law courts. So I've put up here Alan Brandt's um, website, Alan Brandt, the American historian who's written the book The Cigarette Century, and a lot of that book started life as his expert witness testimony in one of the... Uh, tobacco industry cases in the uh, United States. Um, We've got another historian, David Rosner, coming over from Columbia this autumn to talk about that very different uh, policy history interface in in the United States, much more common uh, for American historians. Um, Just a a quick little um, case study. I talked to somebody who, uh, in the alcohol field, a historian, James Nichols, Um, who'd had some of this uh, knowledge exchange um, funding. And he had a Arts and Humanities Research Council Knowledge Transfer Fellowship. And he talked about how he ran seminars for people at the local level in alcohol policy um, and how they were interested in learning about drinking cultures back in the 19th century as to whether they would be, whether it was possible to change drinking cultures. People were confronted with binge drinking, high levels of drinking in the present. Was it possible to look back to the past and think about how cultures could be changed? And he said he found that very successful. Um, He then, and I think this is another important point, got contacted by someone else who'd heard about that and got asked to advise uh, people in Scotland um, about licensing policy. And some of the work uh, which he did then at that level then translated itself into uh, the current licensing bill in Scotland. So he said, um, the material I flagged from the 1931 Royal Commission on Licensing about drunkenness having gone out of fashion is quite a vote swinger when uh, these people present their proposals to politicians so this seems fairly arcane in terms of history but if you present it right and you have the right kind of contacts uh, then i think it can make quite an impact Um, a few words of warning Um, don't think you're going to be the only kid on the block. It's very common working in the policy field for everyone to think that they're a historian and everyone knows about history. So you will often find people speaking instead of you, uh, who maybe have uh, greater authority because they are a scientist of some sort or not a historian, anyway. You'll find also that in the policy field, um, people have their own kind of folk histories, and they're very. they like to cling to those whatever historical research says so in the public health field it's john snow john snow is the great hero and history starts with john snow and people are not often not willing to move into the present also be aware of timing Uh, In policy terms, it's quite important to say things at the right time. There's what's known as the narrative of policy. Things are important to insert at a particular point, whereas later on, people may not be interested at all. And finally, I think a problem perhaps from the historical point of view, or historians, that historians tend to be rather shy and retiring people. You wouldn't think that from what we've had this afternoon. Um, But there... They're used to talking to other historians, and I think sometimes it's quite difficult for them um, to kind of adapt to the mindset, the policy mindset. And I found this when we had our alcohol policy seminar uh, the other week. Uh, The historians did come out and they they made comments and they were very useful. Um, And they didn't talk an awful lot, but what they said was very, uh, very good. And then after the seminar was over, they all started emailing me with what they would have liked to have said <laughs> on the day. <laughs> and I thought, oh, why didn't they say this uh, on, on the day? So I think it's important if you're going to work in, in that sort of field, you know you're going to be talking to policymakers to really think out uh, what it is that you want to say and what, what um, would be relevant. So that's my conclusions, really. I think uh, evidence and policy... Uh, the sorts of issues. There's a huge literature um, in the uh, health arena um, about evidence-based policy, and I think some of the issues which are raised in that are very much the same in relation to history and policy. Something that's come out of nearly all the talks today, who you know, the alliances, and the networks that you operate in are important. So if you want to have an influence on policy, it's important to make those networks, I think. And also I think it's important to have clear messages but messages without advocacy and a particular position